today. It's been a wonderful day here, and I I, uh, I enjoy having the opportunity every week to set aside a day just to give to the Lord. And um, you know, you wake up, you look forward to it with anticipation throughout the week, and then you wake up the morning of, and you think, boy, here in a few hours we get to spend time with one another, and uh, we think of um, the the singing and the preaching. And I don't know about you, but I but before I ever get here, I usually am pretty excited. I'm ready to go, and uh, and then as the day winds down, you know, you just kind of take that deep sigh and think, boy, how refreshing, how wonderful it's been to be in the house of the Lord and to have uh, time together with His people. And you know, the the world uh, is a difficult place for us to have to live in, uh, especially as a child of the Lord and. Uh, it beats us up sometimes. It makes us weary in the way. And uh, the time we spend uh, edifying one another, encouraging one another in the truth of God's Word, I think is vitally important. I think that's why uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Uh, that it is something that is needful uh, in our lives. Ephesians chapter number 6, and uh, I want to deal with five, uh, five things concerning uh, the teaching and corrective ministry of, or God's plan of uh, teaching and corrective ministry of His Word. And uh, we're going to give you five different issues or five different things that the Bible speaks of here uh, with regards to, you know, we uh, spent some time in the morning session uh, with the verse uh, from 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And the importance of that. And uh, I want to deal with some things that I hope will be a help to us in understanding uh, how God works in uh, not only uh, instructing us in righteousness, but in his corrective measures that he uses. Some people would call it the chastening of the Lord, although we'll find here in just a little bit that there are uh, several things that God uses, and chastening being only one of them. And uh, so we're going to take a few moments to uh, look at this, and hopefully it'll be a help to us. Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, we're going to begin in verse number 1. And I want to kind of uh, lay a foundation here by saying there are three distinct relationships that he deals with in Ephesians chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter number 6. He deals with, uh, there's actually a fourth one there, but he, he primarily deals with, on the human side of things, uh, the relationship of husband and wife. And by the way, uh, in a family situation, that is the paramount relationship. Uh, not, I was talking with some folks here recently, and uh, the comment was made, well, don't you agree that the children should come first? The answer to that is no. Uh, the husband and wife, the marriage, must be strong first. Uh, there will be no good parenting without a solid uh, marriage, and so that must be the paramount thing. Now, children are important, and uh, God certainly deals with that relationship. So we have the relationship of a husband and wife. He deals with that. He deals with the relationship of parents to children and children to parents, that, that relationship. And then uh, later on in chapter 6, he deals with the relationship of masters and servants. All of these are earthly relationships, and all three of them depict different variations of the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, certainly, the, Jesus Christ is known as the bridegroom, and uh, 
the one day he's going to come and get his bride. And so there is a marriage relationship uh, that is given in Scripture. And I believe that the relationships that God created for us here on this earth are, are intended to picture and to mirror those relationships with the Lord Jesus Christ and ought to honor Christ in each of them. Uh, then he deals with our relationship uh, with him as a father and a child, or as a parent and a child. Uh, the Bible speaks about, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, uh, even to them that believe on his name. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, in verse number 1, Paul was instructed by the Holy Spirit to, under his inspiration to pen, Be ye followers of me as I am, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, um, let me quote it right here, Be ye followers uh, of God as dear children. And so he uh, likens the relationship with us and God as a, a father and a child type of relationship. And then we've certainly seen the Lord's teaching in His earthly ministry uh, of the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ being compared to that of a master and a servant. And uh, so all three of these relationships, I believe, are crucial. Now, there is a relationship that he also deals with in uh, chapter 5 that I think is crucially important and, and has to be the paramount one, and that is our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, our walk with Him uh, directly and personally. And uh, then he uses these three earthly relationships to kind of illustrate the three areas that we need to focus on when our relationship with God comes into focus. That being said... Uh, we're to follow God as dear children. We're to have that type of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we begin reading in chapter number 6, the Bible says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. By the way, let me just make a comment here for those children that are present. Uh, how many of you are the child of someone? Okay, all of us are. Uh, but uh, children, the Bible says here, are to obey their parents in the Lord and uh, if you obey your parents in the Lord, then God gives you a great reward, doesn't He? No, He does not. Look what it says here, verse number 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is what? That is the reason for obedience. Well, Mom and Dad, if you'll give me this, I'll obey. No, that's a wrong reason. We are teaching them a wrong relationship. Our relationship to the Lord is obedience because it is right. Now, is God a God of blessing? Certainly. Does He, does he reciprocate things? Uh, there is a caveat to it, but I'll show it to you because it tells us here in chapter number 6. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Then he goes on to say, what? Honor thy father and mother, that thy day, uh, that, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. So, the reward does not come from obedience. The reward comes from honoring. Uh, and there is a difference. You guys understand the difference that there is between obedience and honor. Uh, you can obey without honoring, but it is impossible to honor without obeying. It's impossible. Let me say that one more time so that we can understand this. You can't obey without honoring, meaning you can grudgingly and with a rotten attitude, uh, you can obey and do what is required. But honoring goes so much further than that. Honoring is obedience with joy. To do so with a willing spirit, having taken our will and yielding it to that which is in authority over us. And that is an honoring. That is what brings the reward, by the way, and God's blessing upon us. I know Christians that serve and labor 
and they do so grudgingly, and they're frustrated in ministry because all they do is, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, God said I have to do this, I have to do this. And we should, because He has told us these things to do. But the great reward, the great joy, comes when there's the ability to do so with a yieldedness of our will to Him, and with joy, and with gladness. And this is where we get all of the, uh, the, the reward that He uh, promises to us. Then he says in verse number 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up, and I want to start here, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now again, if we have a relationship with God as children, then the Lord is giving instruction to parents here, this is how you will be Christ-honoring in your parenting, that you rear your children, you bring them up, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So, let me, let me go through this. We're going to find the first two of the five points in this verse. God begins in our life as a Christian with instruction in righteousness, and He does this with a nurturing attitude. Uh, it's the idea of uh, a teacher that loves you, uh, that is trying to uh, teach you the, the lesson, and uh, they're kind, they, they do things to try to help you understand, not just know, but understand the material. And God certainly intends for us to learn by His nurturing. I looked up nurturing in the Webster's 1828, and the word nurture, and it means to instruct or to educate. To instruct or to educate. And I thought, boy, that's a wonderful definition here that uh, this is not dealing with God's chastening yet. This is just simply God teaching us in the things of righteousness. This is nurturing. And as a parent, uh, this is how we're to rear our children. We're to instruct them in the things that are right. Notice he says this, "...say, fathers, provoke not your children wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition." But then he uses this phrase, what? "...of the Lord." So when we're talking about teaching and training... Are we just talking about teaching them how to hit a ball or to, um, to go hunting or to, I don't know, what do women do? So, I guess. Uh, are we just teaching them how to cook and how to clean? Uh, what are we trying to teach them? We are trying to teach them the righteousness and godly lifestyle that God intends for us to have. We're to instruct our children in that. If we don't instruct our children in doing what is right because it is right, uh, then we have failed as a parent. And so there should be an instruction. Now, our relationship with God is much the same way. He instructs us, and it is His desire that we learn righteousness and godliness with a yielded spirit, a spirit of honoring Him, and a spirit that is willing to be taught. We would call it years ago, uh, somebody told me as a teenager, you need to have a teachable spirit. Uh, Meaning that there are times where somebody knows it all, they're not going to be told anything other than that. And uh, you'll notice usually that happens in children somewhere around the teen years. <laughs> they know it all. They know better than mom and dad. And by the way, we are similarly like that in our spiritual lives, are we not? When we first get saved, we soak it up like a sponge. We can't get enough of it. But if we're not careful, there comes a time in our life where we kind of are like, Okay, I got this. And we fail to have a teachable spirit. 
Now we come to God's Word and we read something in it. And because we think we might know a little bit better in that situation, we say, well, I know the Bible says this, but... And then we justify why we disagree with what the Bible says. And whether we believe it or not, every one of us sitting here today and standing here today do it to some extent in our lives. You say, Pastor, how can you say so? Have you ever sinned knowingly? If you have then what you were saying is, I know what the Bible says, but... And you found a way to justify why you were doing what you were doing. God's desire is to teach us. We read in the Beatitudes uh, a few weeks ago that we are to hunger and to thirst after righteousness. It is God's desire through His nurturing of us, His loving kindness to us, His hand of blessing upon us, the fact that He has given us His Word, and His Word teaches us in all of righteousness. His desire is that we learn this godly living by His nurturing attitude, His love and His long-suffering toward us. But when we fail to do that, then there comes something beyond nurturing. And this is why I believe that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not just to raise your children in the nurture of the Lord, but also to raise them in the admonition of the Lord. Now, the the word admonition is, is different than the word nurture. You know how I know that? They're spelled differently. <laughs> not the same word. If they were the same word, they would have used the same word. They are different words and have different Meanings. The word nurture is simply an idea of instructing, and there is no correction involved in the nurturing. But when admonition comes on the scene, there is now a correction from deviating from what you learned in the nurture. When we begin to not follow the things that we know to be right, then we begin to, to have what the Bible refers to here as the admonition of our parents. Now, admonition, I looked it up again in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and it says this, gentle reproof to reclaim an offender. Gentle reproof to reclaim an offender. So we have already departed from what we know to be right. And the same thing in a child's relationship with their parents. We teach them to be right in the things of the Lord. When they depart from that, we start with a gentle reproof to bring them back into reclamation, as the Lord Jesus Christ so often does. He nudges us. He begins to prick our hearts. Any of you, after you've sinned willingly and knowingly, any of you ever felt bad about it? Okay, that is the admonition of the Lord. He begins by allowing the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to the heart, and it is a reproof on our conduct for the purpose of bringing us into correction, to bring us back into this. We would call it our conscience, or we would call it the conviction of the Holy Spirit as our admonition. And so God uses this. Uh, his intent is that we learn simply because His Word says it, and we say, yes, I see it, I know it, I long to do it, and I'm obedient to it. That's the gist of the concept here. But we know that in our frail nature, our human nature, we don't always do that. And so God has to bring some admonition along. I don't like admonition. Any of you like the conviction that comes? <laughs> that, that pricking of the heart? I don't like it. 
I'm thankful for it, but I don't like it. I'm thankful for it because it is necessary to get me back to the point and to get you back to the point where God wants us to be. There are a few of us here today, your pastor would put his hand up and say that he's probably part of this group, not probably, he is, that occasionally, maybe not all the time, we're a little bit, what's the word I would use? Stubborn? Uh, obstinate? The Bible word would be stiff-necked. And the reproof, or the, the, the admonition here, is not enough. The gentle reproving is not enough. In this case, we find that there's another step that God takes. There's something else that He will use. Turn with me and hold your place here for a moment to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to see another uh, thing that God does to help bring us back in line with His Word. Revelation chapter number 3. In Revelation chapter 3, verse number... Um, Let's go back to verse number uh, 14, the church at Laodicea, and let's read this letter. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So, has he made his will known to them? Sure. He said, I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of thy mouth. Has he issued a word of reproof? Sure he has. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, we find that there is an obstinance by this church. Yes, he's already expressed what his will is. He's instructed them. He's even brought some gentle reproof in saying that I would you were cold or hot, but now I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And they said, we're rich and increased with goods, have need of nothing. They're stiff-necked about it. God tells them, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, and thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I what? Rebuke. Rebuke. Now, get the picture here. He's, he's let the Laodicean church know what his will was. When they didn't do it, he said, I, I, want, you to, I want you to come back. I want, you, I want to draw you back. I would that you would uh, follow after what I want there in verse number 15. But he says, uh, you're lukewarm and you're neither cold or hot. He says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And then in verse 17, because they were stiff-necked about it, they said, no, we're, we're, we have need of nothing. We don't need to change. Then he says, and he calls them out, he says, And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And he rebukes them. He says unto them, he says to them, uh, in verse number uh, 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in, in white raiment, and thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. So they are lacking in something. And the word rebuke here means there is a chiding 
and a restraining. In other words, God takes away some things for the purpose of bringing us back. He restrains and cuts off the ability that we have to continue in the way that we've been going. In this case, they, the Bible says here, according to verse number 18, that, the, that their nakedness is apparent. He challenges them to, 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 uh, to buy of him gold tried in the fire so that that nakedness would not be apparent. So that their eyes would be able to see. So apparently they don't have sight either. And so there comes a point where if we don't, we don't respond to the admonishing of God with the conviction of our hearts, then He begins to, to deal with us in some very uh, life-affecting ways. Now circumstances begin to be brought into play. Now there are things that I feel like I'm doing without. A, a great illustration of this would be uh, the book of Haggai. If you'll remember the story, the, uh, the, uh, of course, Nebuchadnezzar had come in and captured Judah and Jerusalem and had destroyed the walls of the temple. Nehemiah comes back many years later and he begins to rebuild the wall and they have a revival. Ezra comes in, reads the book of the law. The, the people repent and they are excited. They, they begin to work on restoring the temple of God. And, uh, and so they're excited about this for about two years. But there's a lot of opposition. There's a lot of people in the area that are ridiculing them and giving them a difficult time. So they stop work on the temple. In fact, they go so far as to say it's not time for us to rebuild the temple. And they ran every man to their own house, according to the book of Haggai, and began to work on their own houses with sealed houses and, and uh, the ornateness of their house and the, the, the well-meanings of their house. And God sent Haggai to tell them. He said, this isn't right. He said, consider your ways. He says, there's something that's happening and you're not seeing it. He said, those of you that are earning wages, you're earning wages to put it into a bag of holes. God is not prospering you. You're laboring, you're working, you're trying to get through life, and things are just not happening the way that you expect them to. This was God trying to bring their attention back to, and He brought rebuke to them and said, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, go up to the mountain and, get, and take the wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. And, and He goes on to talk about, uh, you've, you've done some wrong here. You need to consider your ways. So, so follow me for a moment. God's intent, His desire is to be able to instruct us through nurture, and that would be it. That's His desire. Because of our, false, our, our, our flesh nature, our hindrance of that, we err from that, we fall away from that. He begins with the conviction of the heart. If that does not correct it, in short order, He now moves on to rebuking. Why? Because He loves us. And rebuking is to chide us and to restrain us uh, to cause there to be something that pulls back. Uh, I've got a new dog, and uh, we've been trying to train him a little bit. We take him outside, and occasionally something will catch his attention, and uh, he, he wants to go somewhere. And so I, I call out to him. I say, uh, Sachi's no, you know, stop or stay or whatever the command is. Occasionally, he'll do it. Sometimes, he will not do it. When he does not do it, there's a leash there. And I restrain him. I pull him back. And while he is pushing and straining and wanting to go that way, he finds that he's having a hard time doing it. This is the rebuke that God brings. 
That even though we're moving forward and we're saying, boy, I just don't see that I'm wrong here, like the church of Laodicea. I don't realize this. I, I'm fine. You, know, I don't, you don't need to worry about me. I'm going to keep going this way. God pulls the chain, so to speak, and He brings rebuke to us. It's a little bit more stiff, a little, little more difficult. But notice also what He says here in Revelation chapter 3. In verse number 19, He says, As many as I love, I rebuke and, notice this word, chasten. The word chasten is a little bit different than rebuke. You know how I know that? They're spelled differently. If they were intended to be the same thing, they would have used the same word. So there is a difference here. The word chastening, uh, according to uh, the Webster's 1828, is to afflict pain, to purify from error. To afflict pain, to purify from error. Let's look over to Proverbs chapter 3 for a moment. Proverbs chapter number 3. And I want to just, I want to just reiterate this and kind of go, go through the list here at this point. At any stage that we come back to God and say, yes, Lord, I want to get this right, it ends. We're back to nurture again. The problem is... <laughs> In the day we live, it's amazing to me how many times I find in my life that I don't respond even to the admonitions. And often it takes a rebuke. And I'll be sad to say this, there are times in my life, and I'm sure you can find them in yours, that the rebuke is not enough. There's not just a restraining there's not just things aren't going my way right now. There is now some pain that is afflicted to me. Now, notice in Proverbs chapter number 3, and let's look down in verse number 11. Solomon writes, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of His correction. I spoke a little bit this morning uh, on this full sufficiency of the Scriptures, and we, we dealt with the fact that there are times that uh, we're, we're, we're straying in an area, and we come to a portion of Scripture, and it just kind of yanks us back again, and kind of you know, we learn, hey, I'm not supposed to do that. Uh, and, and, and we begin to realize that we're going to have this happening until we get to heaven one day. Uh, we're never going to get to the place where we don't need this correction from the Lord. There's always going to be a frailty. And so this chastening is something that God does that uh, afflicts pain on us. Uh, it, it, it could be uh, physical pain. It could be uh, emotional pain. Uh, but, but rest assured, it is something that uh, does more to get our attention. Uh, maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's a, a relationship that is broken. Uh, but God brings pain along. And He does so to purify us from the air. That is the purpose. Now, we have four things that are given at this point. We have God nurturing us. That's our education and instruction in righteousness. We have the admonition that is a gentle reproof, the stirring of our hearts and conviction when we stray from those things. For 90% of Christians, for 100% of Christians, it ought to be the, enough. But for about 90% of Christians... Maybe we could say that is enough. That conviction is enough. 
For those that are a little more stubborn, we have the reproof of God. We begin to realize that, boy, going down this way is a hard way to go. Paul would be a good illustration of this. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And then we have the chastening of the Lord. The Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, uh, He brings that rebuke to them, and He brings that chastening to them. And in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, He tells us that we should not despise the chastening of the Lord. Even at this point, and understand this, even at this point, it is something that though not pleasant, it is still needful. And we should be grateful for it and not weary of His correction. Now hold your place and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter number 12. God's will is that we learn through nurturing. There are three stages that God attempts to correct and to bring us back to Him. There is admonition, there is rebuke, and there is chastening. Now if we look at Hebrews chapter number 12, and let's begin reading in, uh, let's start in verse number 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as what? Unto children. Alright. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him. So again, we see two levels at least that we've already spoken of, of God's corrective measures. He talks about the chastening of the Lord and the rebuke of the Lord. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and here's a word we've not seen yet, scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The word scourgeth and chasteneth are not the same word. Do you know how I know that? (laughs) All right. We get the picture, right? They are different. And so there is something different about scourging than there is about the chastening. The word scourge, according to Webster's 1828, means to lash or whip severely, vindictive affliction. If we are stiff-necked enough not to take the admonishing of the Lord, and He has to rebuke us, and we do not repent at that point. So He brings chastening. He brings some pain. And we're stubborn enough to continue and say, that's, that's not enough, Lord, I'm going to continue in it. Then the Bible says He will scourge us. And there is a judgment on this side of heaven, not for our sin and payment of hell, But there is a a payment of consequences in our body, in the flesh. And there is a scourging that takes place. This time, it is a last-ditch effort. I believe, personally, and I think that there's enough evidence from Scripture, that by the time we reach this part, we are just a hair's breadth away of what the Bible refers to as a seared conscience. Because if this one does not get our attention, 
the only thing left is no matter what God does, we are going to continue in our sin. In fact, we found in the book of Revelation that there is a group of people who say we would rather die than forsake our sin. Unless we think that is only possible by those that are unsaved, the Bible does not make a distinction that it is possible even for a Christian to get to the place where the conscience has become seared and there is no more conscience of sin. And I, I did not bring the verse. I don't know if I can find it here very quickly. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, I think it's in Galatians chapter number 1. Let's turn there for a minute. Let me see if I can find this real quick. And I may or may not be able to get it for you. I know it's in the book of Galatians in the early part. Let's see if I can find it here. I'm not going to be able to get it for you. But there comes a point where God will turn, even a Christian, that God will turn their body over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the soul might be saved. You don't lose your salvation. You're not going to not go to heaven. But I believe that when you reach the place where your conscience is seared and the Holy Spirit can no longer, there's nothing more that can be done to get your attention, that we have crossed that line where God is now ready to say, I'm going to just go ahead and bring Him on home. There is no other earthly purpose for us to be in this, this earth. Now, I don't know that I can tie that last one together. I'm telling you my opinion on that. But I do believe that by the time we get to the scourging, there is no indication that the scourge is for the purpose of bringing the heart back to the Lord. That this is more of a judgment for the sin that was so stubbornly held to. That this is a punishment that God brings. Now, hopefully, I would think, it would not take anywhere near that. But we find that there is a, a progression of God working in our lives. Now, my, my, my challenge to us is this. When it comes to our life day by day, can we not pray and ask God to help us to be sensitive to His Holy Spirit so that all it takes is an admonishment from Him? When we begin to, to deviate, when we begin to, to go away from the teaching of His Word, that that simple pricking of the heart is enough. We don't, have to, we don't have to be restrained. We don't have to be rebuked. We don't have to be chastened. We don't have to be scourged. But just the admonition is enough. Now, God's will, God's purpose, is that it wouldn't even take admonition. But He knows the frailty of our flesh. And so He has made a way. He talks about all of these steps that are used for the purpose of bringing a man's heart back to the truth of His Word. So I wanted to teach this lesson because I think in some ways we, we have a misunderstanding. 
And the misunderstanding is this, and I think it's been taught wrong perhaps over the years. The misunderstanding is this, that we think that if, if God is displeased with our sin, that He will go immediately to chastening. And that unless we are suffering chastening, then there must not be any reason to repent of it. Can I tell you this? We ought to repent of it long before it gets to the level of chastening. And God offers some steps prior to that. There needs to be a yieldedness of our will prior to the chastening. I've been in meetings where preachers have gotten up and, uh, boy, preach on hard on sin. And, and boy, if you, don't, if you don't do right, the chastening of the Lord is coming. <clears throat> and rest assured, it eventually will come. But it shouldn't take that. And I don't want us to get the wrong idea that I need to wait until I'm being chastened to get some things right. I want to know that the first time my heart is pricked, the first time I have a spirit of, I can't believe I did that. I've hurt the Lord. I've I've disobeyed Him. That that's the moment that I say, I'm going to get this thing right. If that's not enough, if I continue in that way, I would hope at least by the time that God is pulling the reins, He's restraining some things in my life that I would say, Lord, I understand. Your hand of blessing is not upon me. I'm not being able to see the joy in my life that I used to have. I'm not seeing the fruit produced in my life that I used to have. Obviously, there's something wrong hindering you. I would hope that would be all it would take. But there comes a time where the chastening does come, rest assured. And if we don't, we don't get things right in the admonition, and if we don't get things right in the rebuke, the chastening is going to come. And if the chastening doesn't correct it, the scourging is far worse. And it is going to come. I, I, don't, I don't say this to scare us. I say this to help deliver us from this mindset of, I don't need to get things right until it gets bad enough. We need to get things right now. I'm going to, I'm going to end with this illustration. A number of years ago, uh, when I was still married, and we, my wife and I, we had a, a house in Florida. She, for years, had begged me, had begged me to do a, a flower bed uh, out in front of the house. And I told her, I said, I, I really, in Florida, especially, it's a tropical climate, and and things grow uh, extremely fast down there, and. And weeds are terrible, and they go crazy everywhere. And I, I know weeds are all around the world, but it seems like Florida was, like, horrible about it. And at least it is for the purposes of this illustration, because it makes my illustration sound better. Um, but I will say this. I, I, I said, no, I, don't, I really don't want to do this. And, and it's gonna, I, I'm the one that has to do the yard, and it's going to take a lot of maintenance, and I don't want to have to get out there and take care of it and weed it and everything. And... And after months, she finally said, I'll tell you what, you make the flower bed, I will tend to it. I'll maintain it. And, you know, gullible me, I, I said, okay, that's, that's good. I can win some brownie points here. I can show her I love her, and I'm going to make this flower bed for her. And so we did. We went and made this flower bed. And... Uh, uh, the first week or two, I noticed that she'd be out there and she'd be kind of piddling around with the flowers and watering them and pulling a few things out of the mulch. And Then after about a week or so, I noticed I didn't see her out there very much. 
And in fact, it wasn't very long before I didn't see her out there at all. And I began to see, as I would mow, uh, little sprouts of things coming up that were not things we had planted. And uh, they were dollar weeds. Some of you may know what dollar weed is. And uh, a little little thing that came up had a little look like a lily pad on the top of it. A little thing, just a small little thing, sprout up and blossom out. I remembered when I first saw that, I was mowing one day. I, was, I looked over, and I saw about two or three of them there in the flower bed. <clears throat> and uh, I thought, boy, I need to get those. I need to pull those out of there. And but I'm, I'm pressed for time today. I just don't have time, and it's hot. And so I, I got done mowing the yard and weed eating, blowing the sidewalks off, and I, I didn't pull the weeds out. And I uh, went another few days, and I came out of the house uh, a few days later, and there's about a dozen more of them starting to pop up. And then I went another week or so, still didn't pull them out. Next thing I know, there were clumps of them. And they started overgrowing the plants that we had planted in the flower bed. Uh, you know, I'll, us husbands are. I tried to gently remind my wife that uh, you know she had a commitment there. and uh, Probably not as gentle as I should have. But uh, finally, I, I went out there and I thought, I'm going to clean this flower bed up. And I went to go pull the, the weeds out. And when I did, it began to tear the entirety of the flower bed to pieces. Uh, one thing I didn't know about dollar weed until then was that whatever you see on the top, it shot runners out underneath the ground and made a web of things underneath. And as I began to pull one or two dollar weeds, it began to pull up chunks of mulch and plants and ended up, by the time we were done, it had pretty well destroyed the flower bed, and the flower bed needed to be completely redone. I use that illustration to say this. If on the very first day that I saw those two or three little sprouts, I had come and pulled those things out of there, it would have been a lot less destructive and a lot less painful. And I fear that in our lives, so often, we begin to let a few things come in, the Holy Spirit brings conviction and we don't, we don't take heed to it. We let it go. We let it continue. Maybe even get to the point where God brings some rebuking into our lives and, and points it out pretty clearly and, and lets it be well known. Hey, there's things that are happening in your life because this isn't right. There are problems. There are, are issues here. We still don't pull them out. There comes a point when we go to pull them out finally and we say, Lord, I've had enough, I can't take anymore. That it is far more destructive and it is far more painful. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I could get to the place where we don't wait, where we don't think I'm good enough unless God is chastening me. Let's just say, you know, the first time God brings con conviction or He lays something on my heart from His Word, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to get it right then. And let's not wait for the chastening or the scourging. I hope that will help you. It certainly is a relationship that God teaches in Scripture, a father-son relationship. I believe not only does it hold true in raising and rearing our children, but certainly is also useful in our relationship with God. And it shows us the way that He deals with us. And so I hope that will be a help to you. Uh, my fear often is that we preach it wrong and people think, well, if I'm not being chastened, 
If there's no pain in my life, then I must be okay. Let's, let's rather be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit's showing us in our hearts, okay? All right, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Your Word, how it teaches and instructs us, how it guides us. And Lord, may it be a help to us in the days ahead. May we not get to the place where we are expecting Your chastening if we're bad enough. And until that comes, that uh, we're not going to worry about things. But Lord, may we be diligent to look into our 